I'll tell you something I love about being in France, in addition to some seriously delicious butter, and that is the wide selection of wines I can find in France for low prices. It can be much more difficult to source those same bottles back in the States, and that's why I love to buy wines out of France with Ideal Wine. I have bottles shipped to me, hassle-free. It's easy. Ideal Wine has a new auction every week and is a great source for iconic names like Ouette, Louis Roeder, and Domaine Lefleve, as well as rising stars like Arnaud Lachaud, Gonon, and Tissot. Find the wines you'd rather be drinking at idealwine.com. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com and have the wine shipped to you in the States. Use the promo code FIRST, F-I-R-S-T, for $15 off your first order of $150 or more. Hey, that's $15 you could save, and that is some good butter money. See for yourself at Ideal Wine. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Did you ever wonder what wine was like before modern times? What your ancient ancestors may have drank with dinner? Well, archaeological evidence points to some unique drinking trends from thousands of years ago. Here's a survey of the face of wine through time. Now, before we get into it, it's important to note that thousands of years ago, they hadn't quite figured out the yeast portion of the fermenting equation. So most brews would have had several ingredients. Ancient brewers would find that they'd get a better fermentation when they added certain ingredients, like fruits and honey, which increased the yeast populations. Today we consider wine to be a pure product, and adding things to it is seen as a bit of a sacrilege. Wine additions are regulated and many are illegal. But understanding the science of fermentation has allowed us to be more selective. Thousands of years ago, this wasn't the case. First, let's go back 9,000 years to the world's oldest evidence of a wine-like product. An excavation site known as Jiahu on the banks of China's Yellow River shows us many insights into the past. This area was the birthplace of Chinese culture and the earliest evidence we have of a fermented grape product. When scientists analyzed the chemical imprints left on the inside of the Jiahu jars, they discovered three telling substances. First of all, tartaric acid. Now this can indicate many things, but they narrowed the list down to hawthorn and grapes after they found seeds from both of these fruits at the site. They also found chemical imprints from beeswax, which indicate the presence of honey, and they found photosterols, which indicate rice. So one of our earliest fermented grape beverages most likely also contained hawthorn fruit, rice, and honey. Now, of course, the grapes used in this beverage grew wild, and they were of a different species than Vitis vinifera most likely Vitis amaranthus. Now let's head to about 6,000 to 5,000 BC. We're still way back in time, and we'll come to the legend of Jamshid. I've heard many versions of the Jamshid tale, some with racier details than others, but it goes something like this. King Jamshid lived in Persia, and he loved grapes. He stored jars of them in his palace, and when one jar spoiled, it was labeled poison. We're not sure if he labeled it poison because he thought it was poison, or if because he was trying to keep people away from his sacred wine. 
One of his concubines, suffering from an ailment, in some versions it's a heartache, in other versions it's a headache, drank the poison to kill herself. But she became drunk instead and went to Jamshid and made amends with him. Archaeologic evidence at nearby Tep Malian supports that a wine product was being drunk during this time period and was possibly made from grapes that were grown in the Shiraz Mountains. Now let's travel to ancient Egypt, about 3150 BC. We are in the tomb of King Scorpion I. Now this dude's tomb is huge. Three rooms of the tomb are filled with clay jars which contained wine. But this was wine that we would never recognize. It was an imported product and came most likely by sea from Jordan. Some of the clay jars were painted with contrasting stripes that looked like tiger skin. The wine was resonated and sliced figs were suspended in the jars, either to help with fermentation or to augment the taste. Other additives found in the wine included coriander, mint, sage, and thyme. Scorpion One's interest in wine led future Egyptian kings to invest in winemaking, but domestic growth didn't get started until a few hundred years later. Now let's stay in the third millennium BC, but let's head north into the Mediterranean. What were the average people drinking? Here, an excavation site on the island of Crete revealed that even the average farmer had large jars of resonated wine. So wine in the ancient world is a far cry from what wine has become today. Consider the outcry in the 1700s when England discovered that port producers were adding elderberry juice into wines. This led lawmakers to force everybody to rip up elderberry trees in the Douro. The last stand for mixed fermented beverages these days seems to be the realm of beer, where hops and flavoring agents abound. But imagine a future archaeologist analyzing our wine bottles of today. Would they find a pure grape product? Or would their chemical analysis reveal all sorts of additives that we culturally pass off as preservatives? And imagine how they'd scratch their heads if after analyzing a wine cellar, they came across a bottle of Amaro. Next time you take a sip of Amaro, imagine your King Scorpion the first of Egypt, because he might have been drinking something a little bit similar in his day thousands of years ago. It's not enough to make great wine. You also have to reach the consumer that appreciates that wine. And that's where Offset is an incredible asset. Offset is an independent brand design and commerce technology company that connects with wineries on a human level to help them connect with consumers on a human level. Offset is based in wine country and staffed by creative strategists and technologists who are superb at helping create and evolve wine brands through visual identity and package design, developing the look, feel, and tone of your web content, as well as building beautiful and effective websites powered by their proprietary e-commerce platform, Offset Commerce. That's why leaders like Frog Sleep, Grace Family Vineyards, and Rain Winery already rely on Offset. Reach out to the brilliant team at Offset at OffsetPartners.com. That's O-F-F-S-E-T Partners with an S dot com. Offset is focused on the wine industry and can embrace the nuanced needs of your wine brand.
Roberto Paris of Ilbuco and Ilbuco Alimentari on the show today. Hello. Hello, everyone. Nice to see you. You were born in Umbria. Yes. Uh, about, I don't know, many months ago, about 60 years ago. I'm what, from Umbria. What was it like at that time? Well, you know, it was a very poor country. It was after war. Uh, Italy. So I grew up in a countryside um, in a farm where there was no water or electricity, by the way. So I have uh, great memories of uh, a country life, you know, based on uh, things that now seem so a commodity, like, you know, great uh, natural living, I would say, based on game and gardening, olive trees. I come from an olive trees region, more than wine. Um, my areas of Umbria was about... Uh, olives and olive oil. Um, so it's a great um, environment, you know, uphill mountain area. And you started working in, in wine bars? Well, after, you know, I was a student, I went to the university, um, and then at one point I needed to make a living. Uh, my family was a bit of a humble um, origin, so I needed always support myself. So around the age of 20, 22, I started uh, working um, discos as a bartender, like, you know, whatever it meant. And then at one point, I, the first serious job of my life, I actually had, um, I contracted a bar for three years within a tennis club. But there, you know, was my first um, adventurous approach with uh, the beverage in the industry. So apart from making cappuccino and all this Italian traditional thing was would have been too boring for me so I became very you know I started exploring I don't know there were many people of my generation that uh, were open to try different things so I started I started bringing in uh, specialty beers imported microbreweries from Germany not much from Italy at the time today is an explosion of uh, microbreweries from Italy but in the 80s, when I was doing this in Italy, it was just, uh, you know, kind of industrial bottled beers. So I started bringing beers from all over Europe. And that was my first step into, and given the response, I spent to wine. So, you know, don't just Prosecco or uh, Moscato. Just, you know, start pouring interesting varietals from Alto Adige or Umbria itself, of course. Now, within Umbria, I start visiting wineries. So that was my first exploration of the wine world, mainly my neighboring uh, cities. My hometown is just five miles away from Montefalco, which is now kind of a renowned uh, wine region of Italy. So I started visiting wineries, you know, hosting a little wine tastings on my own uh, little bar. And that's how I started uh, getting comfortable with the idea of working with wines. And where did that take you? Well, you know, apart from that, later on I started resuming the studies. Uh, so I traveled, I moved to Germany, uh, and um, with intention, honestly, to become a teacher. I wanted to teach Italian abroad. Instead, movie, film, history. And that's my passion together with jazz music. And uh, but, you know, in order to support myself again in my studies, I was working in bar and nipe and wine bars in Germany. And so I started uh, visiting the, you know, the Rhine Valley and the Pfalz and the Mosel 
developing a palette for uh, great Rieslings. Uh, that's like uh, in Austria, because uh, by then I was uh, lucky enough to know Austrian friends. My girlfriend was Austrian. So <clears throat> uh, she was from Wachau and uh, I had an amazing, you know, revelation. I started drinking, drinking wines and still today are my favorite wines to drink, you know, aromatic varietals from uh, very difficult wine, but, you know, very heroic uh, wine areas like, uh, you know, Germany or Austria. And so there was like, but still was more like an interest, uh, I, a passion, uh, uh, an education of the palate. Um, definitely uh, becoming a wine a professional was not in the picture yet. You know, I was like using it for my job, but mainly, you know, uh, um, research and exploration of life and geography. I'm very much interested in the component of sense of place and history related to wine. You know, wine, we get the end product on the shelf, but there is so much behind. And uh, <clears throat> that's exactly what really tickles me, what really triggers my interest, knowing the area where the wines come from, uh, people who make it, what they eat with the wines. Just the old, no, the old uh, comple complexity, not just the bottle of wine. And uh, so that, that interest never failed uh, to be... Uh, to propel me in my research, in my, in my explorations. So I lived in France for six months. Um, I'm, uh, you know, I didn't have much money, so I couldn't go to Champagne or to Burgundy and, uh, you know, spend a lot of money. But still, you know, I was, uh, you know, tasting things and looking around, trying to talk to wine people, uh, winemakers mainly. For me, that's, uh, that's the highest point of my uh, experience with the wine when I meet a winemaker, the people who make the wine. Uh, that's where I get the most of my information. And the excitement, actually, to, you know, to, to go ahead and confidently have the wine in, in a wine list. You know, that's what really makes me really excited about it. And eventually you moved to the States. How did that come right. about? Oh, well, prior to coming to the States, I went back to Italy after my uh, life in Germany. And for the first time, actually, I was involved with a wine bar. Uh, my friend, one of my best friends and I, I actually opened a wine bar and I was his sidekick. Uh, again, there was a situation which uh, was more a volunteer than anything else. But there my wine uh, knowledge really took uh, a big jump. First of all, was the year in Italy where <clears throat> the so-called renaissance of uh, indigenous varietal was taking place. It was in the 90s. And uh, apart from major giants like Piedmont and Tuscany, everyone else was really, you know, drinking local. But then all of a sudden, thanks also to the slow food movement and to some, uh, you know, in very uh, enlightened uh, university programs in Milan. Uh, the indigenous varietals of Italy actually got the attention and uh, the winemakers started pre-planting or planting what was there to start with. So it was the years of the birth of the Sagrantino, of the Aglianico, or Primitivo, 
and and that led me and my friend my friend and I to visit all these wine areas and you know that's when I met Elena Pantaleoni almost three years ago four years ago going to Sicily where my friend is from uh, Campania so that's where really my wine knowledge uh, became solid and also I started uh, you know making profitable um, so that we were selling wines so we were supporting ourselves um, you know so our knowledge was not just enough to drink with wine or to be excited about something but it was also about you know supporting ourselves so uh, then eventually in 1994 I moved back to, to the United States I had a resident visa that uh, for many reasons mainly personal I couldn't use because I was uh, in some solid relationships and I couldn't leave Italy. But I moved to New York and uh, started really working in another uh, business. I didn't want to be in people related business. And um, but one day by chance I read an article in New York magazine where I found out that my one of my friends, um, who, no, my childhood and high school friend was actually kind of uh, missing in action. Uh, but he was actually in New York. He had opened a restaurant, which was a Puka restaurant. So we reconnected. Um, at the beginning, we were just hanging out. And I remember Alberto Valle, my friend, and Donna Leonard. You know, we were kind of uh, hanging out maybe every now and then. But there was no uh, intention from either side to, to make uh, a move toward me joining the, the restaurant. But uh, a couple of years later, mainly due you know, becoming acquainted, and uh, especially Donna getting to know me and, get, and finding out that I knew something about Italian wine, even though I didn't have any restaurant experience, uh, you know, we came to the point to, to ask, no, that I will join the restaurant in 1997. It was meant to be for a short stint, but it lasted over 15 years. So, so you know, at the beginning was kind of, um, you know, almost difficult because I was used to jobs where there were two or three partners or myself alone. And how I, I am in a situation where there are, you know, 50 employees, big kitchen, uh, even though El Buco by then, even now, is not a large-scale restaurant, but there will be still like so many people to deal with. My experience was a bit limited, so it has been interesting to get used to, to the pace and to the intensity of a New York restaurant. But eventually, you know, my knowledge uh, was enough to make me... You know, useful within the restaurant. At the beginning, was a bartender, sommelier, because the wine list was really tiny. And then I start, um, I started, um, you know, stepping up, you know, acquiring new duties and new skills because it was about skills too. And uh, you know, it, it has been growing ever since. You know, who are some of the people that were working with you at Abilco? Well, looking back, you know, it has been an amazing, uh, uh, interesting scenario because I've been lucky enough to meet, uh, and I was already friend with Jonathan Nossiter, who was the first uh, curator of the list. He was, we were friends because I love movies and I met him 
the couple of movie festival. And then we discovered that he knew people in, in, in Umbria. I knew. He knew Giampiero Bea and uh, another winery. So we became, you know, pals. So when actually the first time that Donna Lennart realized that I could have been an interest uh, for the restaurant was that when I joined uh, her and Jonathan for a wine testing, but she didn't realize we knew each other. So that's the first time. And Jonathan was about to, um, you know, his movie career was taking off. By then, he had not uh, won uh, the uh, Sundance. So maybe it was just one Sundance. So it started being really not having enough time to to dedicate to the wine list of few restaurants. So, but you know, but there was enough the first um, connection. And then later on, when my duties uh, started growing, we needed a sommelier on the floor. And that's when uh, Bill Fitch came on board and uh, he brought all his passions and his uh, kind of humble, um, you know, he's, he's very coy about his knowledge, but he was like a, a huge passionate uh, person, especially he knew a lot about French wines, which were not my forte, and domestic wines, you know. He was coming from the West Coast, so I remember our conversations about Oregon wines and and French, you know. It was the first one to introduce me to domestic Gassac from France or or some great Morgans or Loire wines and and you know that in that way the list was really getting richer because the influences were many. Like, you know my main goal was to maintain the list, uh, cre- you know, uh, run it, uh, run the program. But it was an open field, so whoever was coming on board with a great idea, I tended to embrace it, whether they will stay or not, you know. Uh, eventually, Bill also moved on to other lives. He moved, <coughs> he moved to France with his wife. Also, in the same time, at one point, Savio Soares, who is now the importer and owner of Savio Soares Selection, uh, was there as a GM, as a service director GM. And that was already another wild uh, uh, acquisition for the restaurant. There were days in which we had, uh, you know, since there is a budget, we had to trim it down because uh, the, the three of us, we were so passionate about all, all our, you know, uh, inter- area of interest that it was hard to pin down what to bring in for the restaurant. You know, eventually the restaurant was still an Italian restaurant. Then 80% of the sales were Italian, but but the excitement about other grapes and other regions was in uh, was there, and uh, you know I, w- I was all about being uh, exposed to new things and to learn and to embrace new things. You know. So it was uh, those years between 2000 2002 were really uh, the foundation of what uh, Il Buco became later on. And what did that look like? What did Il Buco become? Now? Mm-hmm. Well, it's become more mainstream. I, w- I have to say that um, there has been a decisive uh, moment when I left in 2009 for my uh, overdue break that turned out to be a, almost a four years hiatus, that um, it's more organized, uh, well 
manage, but you know, with more management. One point I think that uh, there has been uh, an attempt to make it more uh, solid financial, I don't know, but you know, something happened in the wine uh, prices, which by the way, I readjusted as soon as I took over the full control of the list uh, a few months ago. But you know, there's been like, I would say more mainstream, but uh, my um, perception of Il Buco, which is still the same, that is sort of an entity, sort of an animal that can only be embraced. And whoever has been trying to change it failed miserably. It's a, it's a place with an extreme energy. Uh, the owner and I always agreed on the fact that uh, the restaurant has a soul. Uh, it's hard to, to describe. And so it's that, that's certain je ne sais quoi that it's hard to pin down because we did a lot of things right, but sometimes not. And But still, the restaurant is prospering, it's packing. Um, the day I was leaving, some people were uh, predicting uh, that the restaurant would fall down. It didn't. You know, and I was the one said, don't worry, it's going to be doing fine. It's been doing fine with and without everyone else. And that shouldn't be my case. Of course, you know, I, I love the restaurant more than my own. Uh, if I have a restaurant, I would love it less. That's, that's the thing. That's where I spent most of my life, my adult life in New York. And was more than a job, was a community. A community that I always took pride on making it a good place to be. A good place to come to work. Because I would hate to be in a place where people can't wait to leave. You know, for some reason, actually, the opposite happened. People will never leave. They will never move on. They will be, we will be together. Like, it was really a true, uh, true family, true community. And, uh, you know, I'm really proud to have been uh, hanging out with such a great group of people. You know, I was in the position to make room for some servers or floor managers and, and, uh, accommodate them, not financially, but to make sure that they would have a life besides the restaurant life. So they could graduate, so they could raise the kids or take uh, a two months job and come back. So when I was in a position to decide that, uh, that always happened, you know, because I always believe that uh, it's always better to have someone talented around two months a year than not at all. So, you know, even though sometimes it costed me some time, I had to fill in or I had to be inventive with the schedule, but I always try to make it what I believed it is, a true community. And I would say this still, it still is, it still Buco is that. It's, it survived many things and still packing every night and still making, you know, uh, making people happy. Diners are happy to come back, you know, consistently. So your first tenure there, you developed into wine director and, and, and general GM, manager. Yeah. And well, for whatever. I mean, it's it's uh, titles are a bit an empty word because a GM has to have some back of the house uh, skills that I didn't have. My mom didn't make me an accountant, that's uh, for sure. But two things for sure, I think, I nailed down was the wine program. And the running of the team. I, I think we had one, a very exceptional team. Many of the team members, which were waiters, now are wine directors, owners of wine shops, uh, 
owners of restaurants, managers, and they all developed, you know, into something beautiful. But I think I take some pride in saying that I managed to keep them around. And they was making uh, the restaurant really rich, not just in food and wine, but the human factor. Today, when I see uh, restaurants opening, I see that this hiring of new stuff is always the last thing to do. For me, it's insane. I mean, if I ever open something, I would say, first I need to figure out who's going to work with me and then decide what I open. And that's how much I believe in the human factor. Because eventually we are in the hospitality, you know, especially, you know, I'm more the keen on small sites establishment. When it gets too big, I feel like I'm misplaced, you know, I'm out of my element. But, you know, Il Buco was the right side. It was like 30 to 50 people, employees. It was like more or less my own uh, turf. <clears throat> because you told me once you were in the people business, not the wine business. Right. <laughs> that's, that's what I believe in. It's like, you know, uh, it's about people. Uh, people who work in the restaurant, who own the restaurant, the chef who cook. It's like, it's, uh, it's definitely my biggest... Uh, attachment to the to the profession it's about people you know there are, look how many p places in town open and uh, with great food great ambience great wines but there is an element missing and that element is the human factor and that's where i think where il buco excelled during the years making people feel comfortable recognized it's like something i taught when I came to the United States, that was impossible to replicate in the United States. Because in Italy, it's normal. In Spain, it's normal. You go to a restaurant where your parents have been, uh, where there's been uh, weddings, uh, uh, your kids baptized, you know, confirmation. It's like there's a sense of community and continuity, especially in, uh, in the smaller towns. And I thought that in New York, we'll never... Um, will never be the case, but it's not true. Even New Yorkers are, are, are almost crying for something like that. So when, when even you know, very famous people, they see that they, they get recognized and treated like who they are, not just celebrities, they appreciate it. And, uh, and that's what I think Il Buco has been uh, good at during the years. But you did a lot of interesting things with wine. Yeah. One of the things you did was to bring Sagrantino into right. focus for New York. Well, that, that was like um, almost a, a match made in heaven. I came to New York when there were only two Sagrantinos in the city. So the first acquisition I made, actually there was only one in the city, was Bea with Rosenthal. Then the second acquisition was uh, Caprai, but it was in New Jersey, so we had to bring it over from New Jersey. It wasn't distributed in Manhattan yet. And since then, both wines have been featured on the wine list, but this is the anecdote. Those two wineries really compete with each other in a diff many levels, also personal level. So most likely, if a restaurant is carrying beer, will not carry uh, Caprai. I made sure that they both uh, understood that, you know, this is uh, my house. And I feature both of them. The reason why I do that is because they represent two different takes on the grape, on the terroir, and on, on a com in the community. So, starting with that in 1997, uh, we end up, I ended up in 2009, when I left, I had uh, a, a reserve list of its 13 producers. 
27 vintages, you know, mixed. And probably the largest uh, Sagrantino selection uh, outside the outskirts of Montefalco. And honestly, it wasn't just a museum of uh, showing stuff. We have been really good in uh, selling the wine. I mean, during the years, people were coming to Bugo as a destination. They knew they would find uh, Sagrantino, Montefalco, or Umbrian wines in general. It was a good, uh, uh, a good bet, I would say. It, it became really easy for me. At one point, we even uh, in, imported our own wine. I mean, a friend winery, you know, through a broker. So we did, uh, you know, there have been articles written. There was attention from um, wine bloggers. Uh, and through the Sagrantino, actually, I met some remarkable people, like Alice Firing, uh, Jeremy Parsons, the now are noted bloggers or wine writers. So we became friends, but really... They came to the restaurant because they knew they could find some interesting wines that were otherwise not available. And let's talk about that a little bit, because you were also early into bringing natural wines into the New York restaurant right. marketplace, mm -hmm. what we would now call natural wines, which right. then didn't have a name. Right, exactly. I mean, I, you know, I remember it was sometimes uh, uh, things that I would find what to look for. I remember once one of the importers of Angelino Maule, uh, Pico and his wines, was really struggling moving the wine. I said, what can I do? I cannot move. I said, you know, make me an offer I can deal with. So there was, so I, I bought the Pico, like decent amount, like 200, like 20, 10 cases, 20 cases, and I put it by the glass. At the beginning, the stuff was like, this is crazy, this is insane. So I was trying, you know, testing the wine, suggesting Mainly I was, I mean, with the staff, I've been always um, making them relax. There is nothing to fear. People don't like it, we take it back. Or it needs to be playful. You know, it's like we are exploring, we are, we are you know, shaking our boundaries together. And it should be fun. I never, <clears throat> I never understand when wine is made so difficult. You know, for the drinkers, for people who work in the wine should be first fun. If it's not fun, it can be changed. There is no attachment, you know. Um, so it did work out. It took little time. You know, first week was difficult, the same, and then eventually the wine starts selling. The staff were more confident. Uh, they knew um, how to talk about it, to present it. There was like one case, and then, you know, of course, Pondonia wines by the glass. Or I always believe that the true task is to, to move wines like this by the glass. Because in the wine list, they're there. Someone who knows them comes in, he picks them. He picks them. But if they are by the glass, the, the exposure is much more, it's wider. So the impact is much higher. That happened with uh, when Gravner was making a red wine, which was no sulfites already, already then. And uh, the importer didn't know how to move it, even there. I put all the red by the glass, <coughs> and it did very well. It went on for six months. Unfortunately, he decided not to make red anymore and not to import it anymore. But probably would be at the prices that would be not uh, uh, suitable by the glass program. So there are a few examples like that, you know. Uh, Radicon, but you know, 
unfortunately, some I love uh, natural wine movement, but sometimes it, it comes out to price at prices that is really hard to move. I, uh, nowadays we have, you know, I'm a, I'm currently pouring Elan Pantaleoni wines by the glass or Arianna Occhipinti, which is really they really make it easy for us to apart that the public is open for them. But it's really easy for us to to figure out how to move them, to 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 propose them. Otherwise, you know, if they are two hundred dollars in a wine list, they will sit there for a long time. And even people like them, they they're not going easily that direction, you know. So it needs to be affordable. But um, likely, there is a, an explosion of in the offer in the market. I mean, uh, the biggest difference with f- four years ago when I left and now is like there are at least 10 companies that comfortably and affordably are bringing wines that fun, beautiful to drink, and, you know, and anyone can afford it, whether they are from Loire or from from Collure or from Spain doesn't, or Greece, doesn't really matter. Uh, it's a beautiful uh, time to be in New York now. Uh, that's, uh, but I'm, I'm really, um, what I'm really interested in is to offer a wide selection of wines without being <clears throat> confined in one area. Like, uh, so my wine list reflects more or less my palate and my judgment. But I'm like somebody asked me, said, do you put the orange wines in your own selection, in your own section? I'm against it. I like, you know, every wine should be divided by region. Nowadays we do it by region. And, you know, and we can explain whoever wants to know what wines are. But also I like to have um, the chance to have people trying a wine without knowing that it's natural. And I appreciate it. You know, it doesn't have to be that label uh, offered. And and right now at the Alimentari, I think we have about forty percent wines that could be defined natural, whether are without sulfites or biodynamic or organic, and they all do very well. And none of them exceeds the ninety dollars in the wine list. So it's like between fifty and ninety. It's it's reasonable. And it's uh, enjoyable, you know, for everyone. You were the type of manager that was known for a hands-on style when you were the GM before. Mm-hmm. The kind of guy, no concern was too small, is what I tend to hear from people who work with you. How did that evolve into be your style, and then what were the effects of that? Well, right, you know, just you said the, the magic word. Nothing was not my concern. It's like, uh, so... I was saying before that uh, on my desk for a while I'd written my motto was from toilet paper to champagne. And uh, because, you know, I was around, so uh, there was nothing that uh, I wouldn't do. I mean, I cannot cook, like you saw, so I never went. <laughs> or, but I would have been cleaning if it was necessary. Um, so that's, uh, but that's part of my, also my upbringing, also the fact that I worked for a long time on my own. My first experience in the world of, of making money and supporting myself, I had to do everything. You know, not just the shiny aspect of, uh, I mean, everyone likes to, to be a wine director, but then there is the glassware and then there is the dishwasher that doesn't work. And then there is like, it's a, you know, it's a chain of things that you need to keep under control. 
And I always do it, did it without any problem. I mean, that was like, again, it has to do with the fact that um, my first few jobs were really hands-on. I, I was supposed to do everything. I was on my own or with another partner. So, uh, and so that transferred really easily. Sometimes it got out of hand. So I, be, I had too many things to do at the same time. And uh, as we all know, sometimes end up not doing everything perfectly, you know. But the good intentions was always there. I also learned how to delegate later on, you know. Luckily today, nowadays, uh, I have probably the, the most, the cushiest position ever. I'm a wine director for both restaurants. Uh, one, the book I supervise, alimentary, I totally run the program. It's probably, you know, where I should be now at my age because uh, what I did 20 years ago probably today would be unsustainable. You know, it's a lot of physical work. I mean, restaurant work is very heavy on the body. Long hours, standing, you know, bad sleep, bad... You don't know when you eat, when you know when you go to sleep. So right now I think I have a more appropriate uh, function. But you took yeah. a break for a bit. You were at yes. GM and then you decided to go. Right. In 2009, I came to the point that um, I was really tired. I got sick a couple of times and my doctor was telling me that uh, I was taking a bad direction. I mean, it's, you know, nothing really bad. But so, you know, I came to the point to take a three-month sabbatical and I left uh, an assistant behind and other managers. But... Um, Somehow things didn't work well and uh, other people were hired. And after three months, um, during a conversation with the owner, she told me, you know, if you want, you can take three more months. I said, fine. I said, you know, I went up and hiked uh, the Pre-Malaya and then Nepal. It's like I went crazy. Um, so it was like free like a bird and a big rush of adrenaline. And <clears throat> then I came back uh, in June. 2009 to see what thing, July, how things were looking. And honestly, we all agreed on one thing that the restaurant could go ahead without me and uh, I could go ahead uh, and doing other things. In the meantime, during my travels, I'd met uh, my current fiance, um, hopefully wife soon. And uh, so uh, my traveling took another level. Uh, I moved to Thailand for three years about three years. Well, coming back and forth to Europe, trying, I had some summer gigs and, uh, in a very fancy resort owned by a, uh, a very well-known uh, uh, Hollywood director, who I'm not supposed to mention. But <laughs> so that was like, you know, giving me like two or three months in Italy, which was also um, needed because I've been away for too long, you know, I needed to be closer to my family, to my brothers and sisters and nephews. Like, um, So, you know, uh, that's been an interesting ride. I took on uh, meditation, uh, I hiked many mountains, and mainly today, you say, the most important aspect I found a, you know, a private situation that it was not available in New York for me. I, I never made it, or maybe because I was working too much. So now I have this, uh, you know, treasure. I treasure this uh, companion very much. This is my, my girlfriend, fiancé. So, you know, uh, it wasn't 
I couldn't foresee that, of course. When I left uh, in March 2009, it was all about uh, you know, taking a wild ride and traveling and doing things I was planning for a long time. But then it, took, uh, it went to another level. So I started settling down in a country that I never really, uh, really, I mean, I love it, but I never planned to go. So I ended up being in a place that I couldn't imagine before. Thailand. Thailand, yes. And there is like, you know, it wasn't very nice uh, detour from my usual self. I mean, I didn't touch alcohol for a year and a half since I was doing uh, meditation. I, I went to monasteries a few times. Of course, I sailed, you know, I've been diving. I mean, enjoying a very uh, affordable life, uh, great food, um, you know, great weather, all, all together an amazing package. Um, and honestly, I was really pretty happy. Um, I, I, probably the most time I spent in a city has been like every now and then a few days in Bangkok because I'm, I'm in the countryside. Uh, in Italy, I'm the countryside. It's just, you know, big cities somehow get to my nerves. It's just too much for me. Like I like, I like a more <laughs> a suave, a more... Uh, quiet lifestyle. I don't get bored easily. Of course, I had plenty of time for my readings. You know, I'm an avid reader. I read almost anything I find. Sometimes when I'm, I find myself like addicted, I go to a supermarket, I read the labels. <laughs> no, just, this is my joke, but I have this. I love to read. And having so much time, you know, made me reading and uh, keep on going, writing my journals and uh, fun. But for that, you know, you need time. If you're in New York and you are 16, 14 hours a day in a restaurant, uh, you have no time. You're always running around, responding to demands of other people, whether it's, uh, you know, any, anything. It's, it's great. I can do it. I love it. But I also love the opposite. You know, it's, my, it's brought balance in my life. So it uh, finally, you know, I took care of other things. Then last year, you know, in February, on the verge of the three stars for the elementary, the owner of the restaurant, Donna Leonard, and uh, her son, Joaquin, who's almost like a nephew to me, came uh, to visit me in Thailand. And during our vacation, you know, we discussed the possibility for me to come back to help out with the new baby, which is a giant baby. Because right? there was another restaurant. Right? Yes. Uh, okay. Yes. Um, in the meantime, while I was away, uh, uh, the attempt to open a restaurant finally, another restaurant finally worked out. It didn't work. Well. I mean, it was always in the picture, but there was never enough uh, favorable condition. So finally, the condition came to place. And um, I didn't come into helping out until the first six months of life. So the, the restaurant was open in September 2011. I was here actually for the inauguration. And then on February, uh, there were the three stars from the New York Times, and the business just exploded. Uh, and that was the time when the owner was in Thailand with me, and you know, looking at the picture and how, how overwhelmed almost everyone was, she, you know, she said, you know, will you please consider coming backward? So we found an agreement, but the agreement was about coming on board, fostering uh, 
new managers. Like that, the air idea I was like, oh, you have been around so long, you know me, you know the restaurant, so you can bring uh, your experience, you know, your insight. But the fact is that whoever was working or was supposed to foster and let grow quit for a reason or another. They moved on. They took another job. Their wife moved, uh, got a job in, in California, whatever. For whatever reason, people didn't stay. And uh, so once again, I got stuck with, <laughs> with a myriad of things to do. And it lasted until uh, this. Um, and actually, at the beginning, I wasn't even dealing with the wine because there was a another wine director who took over the wine list, the wine programs when I left, Paul Lang. And um, so I was contributing, but really my main task was running the restaurant, you know, floor manager, general manager, working closer to the director of operation, who's a dear friend. Um, but, didn't, but then again, everyone moved on. Paul Lang moved on. My friend, director of operation, Alfredo Ruiz, moved on. So. It took about until uh, July 15th this year that I've been, you know, juggling with, uh, even beyond my own uh, capacity, with almost everything was needed to deal with. And consider Alimentari is like um, three times the size of Ibuco. I mean, in terms of covers, like, you know, it's gigantic. It's like a, it's a giant machine that uh, rolling from 9 a.m. to 1 a.m. or midnight and big kitchen, very successful, the food is fantastic. But I had know, a great meal there, uh, like genuinely great. Yeah, I know. I mean, honestly, the food has been the shiniest aspect of the restaurant. Little by little, again, you know, I took over the wine program for good on, uh, on May and, um, you know, making arrangements. So the wines are, you know, moving along. Like my goal is to present wines that go well with the food. Once considered that the star is the food, I, I want to bring in wines that complement that food. Uh, never to forget that the wines are important because uh, in a f you are in the food industry. So, you know, then I'm not, in I, even though I may consider, I'm not interested in big, you know, super Californian uh, Cabernet because they just wouldn't fit the profile. You know, like wines, food wines, affordable food wines. So that's one thing. And the other thing that's I finally, with the right people coming on board, I'm relieved by, of, uh, I'm relieved of uh, managerial duties. But it's just fresh. Up until mid-July, I've been dealing. If, and I'm not saying that I've been dealing that successfully. Sometimes I'm, I end up doing things I really don't have a clue about. So, <laughs> you know, like, uh, so it's, uh, now the operation is really big. You have two restaurants, 150 employees, uh, it's not a small uh, little, you know, noho restaurant anymore. You know, the uh, it's a, it's a big company. It presents a lot, so I like to play my role and within the restaurant, respecting everyone at position. And uh, it's uh, we're getting there again. Alimentari has been uh, uh, an amazing story too, uh, but a totally different one from the book. You know, it's a big project. Uh, investment, investors, a lot of things at stake. So while Il Buco took a long time to build, um, it's uh, privately owned, it's all paid. So it's almost like, you know, a uh, no-brainer. It, it has the opposite problem eventually that needs a little rejuvenation. 
but it's really well settled. Uh, Alimentari needs a lot of attention from all of us. Like it's growing really fast. It grew really fast, almost too fast. And um, but again, uh, you you confirm that the food is fantastic there, and uh, so we are all uh, making sure that every other uh, aspect of the restaurant gets uh, to that level or closer to that level. Service, the wines, um, you know, and the organization overall. You've been friends and worked with Donna Leonard, the owner of Ibuku and Ibuku Alimentari for a number of years. Right. What, what is she like? Well, I, I had the, um, the chance to say that many times. I probably would have been not lasting so long. She was, would have been less committed and demanding. The way I am, you know, the respect, apart from being, we developed friendship, you know, we are like, again, I, she calls myself uncle to her son. Um, but um, the truth is that uh, her commitment to excellence is was really uh, made me uh, stay for a long time. So because it was like a challenge, it was, it was a, uh, an inspiration. It also did match a part of me that sometimes I didn't know I had. Well, you know, I've been a marathon runner. I know what it takes to push it. And so I used that uh, kind of uh, character in the, my job too, you know, a sportsman job, like that you don't give up, that you show up to work every day, improving. So that uh, really is probably the best uh, affinity we have that she wants, no matter what, she's been around. It's not about money. People think it's about money. Restaurant business sometimes, if you break it down, it's not even worth it. I mean, if you break down the work and the troubles and, <laughs> and the efforts you have to put there, if you really want to make money, you're better off investing your money in real estate. So, and also with a big rush of failure. How many people failed miserably in spite of uh, the great ideas, you know? So it's not, it's about really a desire to excel and not even ambition. I, I see the purity in this desire, in myself, in herself, in her too. Like really to create something beautiful um, that you can be happy with, you know. And that's really our biggest affinity. I mean, apart from a personal affection and, and love for each other. And the wine world, just to bring it back to that for a second. What are you in love with in the wine world today? Um, small importers, of course. Um, the, um, I have to say that some of my old favorites are still my favorites. Uh, I am about to schedule an event with Sergio Char from Chateau Mossel, which I have uh, the privilege to have met a few times. Um, that's definitely still there and nobody's going. I mean, a few people are featuring his wines and I can only uh, name probably at this moment uh, Terroir and, uh, you know, the master of Terroir, Paul Grieco, uh, for being so passionate about this winery. So it's, it's so some of the news are the old news. Uh, so the first thing I did, actually, I reinstated all the Musa wines in both wine lists because they were somehow not considered not relevant by other managers, other wine directors. But that's my one of the things. Uh, the major change, actually, though, is the presence of affordable, valuable, 
natural wines. Uh, I mean, companies are endless to mention, but Savio Soares and Jenny and Francois offer so much uh, value there that uh, it's impossible not to take advantage of, uh, whether it's from France or Italy, it doesn't really matter. Actually, uh, what I'm really surprised of uh, is the explosion of uh, interest of natural, small producer of natural wines in Italy. Because to my knowledge, there were very few. Uh, there were still today, they are opposed by local uh, uh, associations, like, you know, they're, they're treated like pariahs or rebels. Uh, uh, we know about, you know, the problems that Oliver Cousin has in, uh, Cousin has in France, but it's the same in Italy. Um, I'm very proud that finally, after three years of, I, I had it before, but I'm available. I don't know if you're aware or no Corrado Dottori and La Distesa wines from the market. Very good, yeah, from the market. Five cases of wine in the market. I probably take them all once they're in New York. So it's like, that's what gives me an enormous uh, rush of adrenaline. You know, because I met the guy, I visited the winery. I didn't, wasn't even aware he wasn't in the United States. I had once a case through Gray Market. And honestly, I ended up drinking half of it was was too little to put it in the wine list no that's the excuse you used yeah <laughs> it's also well, happens anyway, to be really good wine <laughs> when i say drinking is probably if you come in for dinner and you ask me what do you have what do you have up your sleeves so i'll go downstairs and show up with that bottle and i test it with you i don't even i mean i mean that's uh, that's uh, one of the uh, prerogatives that to have that position which you can have something always uh, you know hiding somewhere that can make someone special happy you know, uh, not everything is uh, printed on the list. You know, that that's uh, that's the old timer. That's when, if you had come to my wine bar once uh, in the 90s, we didn't have anything printed. You would come in and say, what do you feel like? Um, what mood are you? Like, you know, so I would look around on the shelves and pick one bottle instead of another, trying, if it didn't work, we open another one. So it's like, you know, really relating to the person in front of you that sometimes I still do in the restaurant. But again, the la my latest excitement is the acquisition possible, I hope soon, of La Distesa and uh, the, wine is, uh, the wines from La Distesa. Um, and then again, some small, you know, unknown wineries that I didn't know. I have no problem saying that sometimes I'm offered wines that I didn't even know exist. Um, it will be a sad day, the day in which I don't discover something new. You know, I, I think the worst that can happen to people in our, in our uh, line of work is to think one day that you know everything you need to know. I mean, I definitely know more wines than I can use, but uh, I don't know everything and I want to know every day something more. I, I cannot, if I don't have that element, I will probably wouldn't do it if I will become jaded and uh, unenthusiastic about something, I, I will just do something else with myself. Yeah. When I go down to the cellar in El Buco, the original El Buco, mm -hmm. I see amazing old wines that hang over over <laughs> my head and yeah. it's on the walls. And I say, how do you have that? And it's, oh, it's, that was uh, Roberto's oh, really? private collection. That's a gift to Roberto. What, what, what are the layers of El Buco from someone who's been there for so long? Sometimes I hear about you know, finding old wines that Jonathan Nasser had put on the right. list back uh, in the bowels. Uh, yeah, you know, what, what, what layers and stories and 
uh, histories does that restaurant hold beneath it? Uh, you know, there is definitely still a lot of um, old Umbrians, one bottle each of old Sagrantinos. And then there is like a few years ago, I bought for a ridiculous price a, a case of older Musa wines that now I think I checked online, it's like it's insane expensive, but like we're talking about 68, 74, uh, 64, four reds. Um, there are some, um, you know, older Burgundies, but um, uh, our budget has been always limited. You know, we are not like, uh, well, not to mention like a Batali group, they have million dollar sellers. Our sellers is humble. So the treasures you see, they're really treasures. They're sometimes they're forgotten. As you may know, like, you know, it can happen also with books, right? You buy so many books and 10 years later you discover, wow, that, I didn't know I had that book. So that sometimes happens with the wines that they slip through the crack. And uh, so there are some older Rieslings, uh, Auschlesser, Baron Auschlesser. There are some older uh, Grüner Unfortunately, in some moments, in the need to deplete inventory, uh, in my absence, um, they they even pull by the glass stuff is like collectible. But you know, uh, that's a business aspect that uh, it's a bit cruel sometimes. You know, we need to make and uh, I I can't I can't criticize anyone for that. But sometimes it's like you know the urge to deplete inventory. Uh, makes uh, uh, people make some uh, choices that are quite brutal, <laughs> I would to say. But you know, there is plenty of stuff sitting there. Um, I have once again, I have inventory in my hand, and I was checking that there is still stuff that was there in 1997. You know, there is an older Rioja, like a 69 Rioja, that has been there since I came on board. As a matter of fact, I have an anecdote to say that. When I came on board, um, the first time I opened La Rioja Alta, uh, Arda, Vineyard Danza, I honestly thought it was corked. So that, that's like so naive, like I didn't know anything about Spanish wine. So I took the bottle back and then the second was the same. So it was like my first impact with uh, old Rioja wines. Um, and then I, I later on, we had like a major uh, hysterical laugh with Jonathan Nosida because, you know, I said, you really didn't know. No, I didn't know. So I, you know, that was my first impact with older Spanish wines. So now we have still hiding somewhere a few older vintages, but again, it's not cases. It's just few bottles of this, few bottles of that, and some of them just um, uh, are being considered valuable. Some others just were in a case where everyone forgot them, or they've been found back a few years later. You know, or maybe I did hide stuff very well once that I even forgot I put it there. So, you know, there is stuff resurfacing every now and then. But I would say that the, the largest uh, depth of the restaurant is, uh, you know, Italian. You know, we have a great uh, depth in the Piemontese. And actually that I noticed that the, the interest in all the Piemontese wines is really solid at Ilbuco. Uh, we go through a lot of older vintages and uh, um, that's, that's reassuring because, you know, Piedmont is also an area where everyone thinks uh, uh, to know, but when they start drinking it, they find it too acidic, too tart. Like everyone thinks that because of the big points, the point system is uh, misleading everyone. People see big points 
And I think it's rich and fleshy and then ends out to be really tart and astringent and acidic. Or when it gets old, really light and, uh, and kind of uh, frail, you know. So but, but we are doing well in that uh, department. Roberto Paris, he knows the values that have sometimes been forgotten and he's doing well still today after all these years. Thank you very much Thank for Thank you being very much. Here. Thank you for having me. Roberto Paris of El Buco and El Buco Alimentari. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.